Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 12th of June, 2019, by Dr. Edward House, Senior Lecturer in Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Roehampton. The lecture is part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar series and is entitled Human Desire and Divine Desire, The Case of John of the Cross. Thank you very much uh, for having me, and um, I've enjoyed hearing some really good papers today. Um, I hope you've still got some mental space left for hearing another paper. Um, it's about desire. Uh, there's been a lot, I think, around in theological circles, maybe philosophical circles too, about desire recently, which has uh, spurred my interest. Um, I've been in conversations with Sarah Coakley, you probably know her systematic theology, the first volume, God, Sexuality and the Self, is really, could be seen as an attempt to retrieve the Christian tradition of eros, desirous love. Um, and in conversation also with philosophers, part of a Templeton project recently called um, Religious Experience and Desire, run by Fiona Ellis, who's a colleague of mine, and Claire Carlyle at um, King's College, London. Um, thinking about desire, and also, I think, interested in retrieving this uh, medieval, ancient tradition of eros in philosophy. So that's very interesting. And it set me thinking about what John of the Cross might have to contribute to this discussion. Um, uh, and that is really the base of my paper today. And I should say that the paper I'm giving is a version of an article recently published in Religious Studies. So if you've got Cambridge Court online, uh, there's a version of it there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, if you search in John the Cross for desire, I think what you first discover is that the language of desire is everywhere. He uses many different words for desire. They are appetites, passions, affections, longings, moanings, uh, gustos, which is pleasures or tastes, uh, uh, wanting words, that's querer, wanting or wishing, amor, love, and desire itself, desear, deseo. And I think the reason for this plethora of terms is that John is drawing on a tradition of erotic language for understanding the relationship between God and humanity, which goes back at least as far as origin. For origin, as I expect you know, uh, desirous love or eros is the force joining God and creation. Origen notes that this divine eros is widely to be found in scripture. 
He interprets the Song of Songs as a narrative of desire between God and humanity, for which he finds corroboration in Jewish interpreters. The peak of human experience is to share this divine desire in the mutual desire of the lovers of the Song of Songs in the state of union with God. This is a contemplative goal, to see God through the mutual gaze of Eros shared between the human and divine partners. A few centuries after Origen, Pseudo-Dionysius extended this identification of Eros with God, speaking of the divine Eros as the ecstasy of God to creation, which implants our own ecstatic desire for God in return. That's the Divine Names, chapter 4. So desire on this view is much more than a physical or merely human need. It is God's desire, present in every part of creation and most of all in humanity, as created in the image of God. We long for God with the same desire that God longs for us, and to reach human fulfillment is to share this desire mutually with God. But since this desire as God is everywhere, it's hard to know where to begin in giving an account of it. If it is everywhere, would one even know if one experienced it? And would it have any connection with human desire for things in the world? Is there any continuity between the way that we desire, say, a hot bath and the way that we might desire God? The philosopher Talbot Brewer, in his article, Three Dogmas of Desire, which I recommend very highly, uh, 2006, for a philosopher's treatment today, <clears throat> seeks to challenge the notion that desire can be understood as no more than the satisfaction of propositions. That is, the desire that I want X to be true. The desire would be defined as uh, that kind of uh, uh, wanting something to be true, and when it is true, my desire is satisfied. Brewer sets up his argument as a challenge to what appears to be a consensus of accounts of desire today. Desire on this account is only of the propositional kind. There are objects that you want, which once you've got them, the desire ends. Brewer thinks this is only one kind of desire and not the most important or prevalent kind. In the case of two people in love, for instance, their desire for one another cannot be accounted for only in terms of the satisfaction gained through the things that they do. There is a strong difference between the things that they do as fulfilling propositional statements of desire and their desire for each other. Take, for instance, their desire to spend time together. This can be propositionally stated, and when they spend time together, this desire is satisfied. But this does not capture the nature of their desire for each other. Spending time together is a means to a greater desire for their, for their desire to, far from being satisfied, to increase, or at least not to go away. If spending time together made your desire for one another go away, you wouldn't want to spend time together. Um, this, so their desire for one another cannot be stated in terms of the satisfaction of a propositional statement. Intensifying their desire for one another is not something that becomes the case when the desire is satisfied. 
It's an open-ended process which is good in itself. The two kinds of desires are different, yet they are also connected. The desire to spend time together is best understood as a subordinate means to the greater purpose of intensifying their mutual desire. Brewer is suggesting that a propositional account of desire is valid, but that there is a deeper level of desire which has a different constitution, which is the source of these propositional desires. The difference between the two kinds of desire can be simply stated. The propositional account is desire, desire defined by lack. I want something that I lack, which, once given, ends the desire. For instance, if I'm hungry for food, when I get the food and eat it, my hunger is satisfied and the desire for food goes away, at least for a time. In contrast, the kind of desire between lovers is desire defined by abundance. So we've got a lack type of desire and we've got an abundance type of desire. I do not want this desire to be removed by attaining a propositional state of affairs. I want it to increase. Brewer is moving in the direction of the ancient and medieval account of desire. This is essentially a Neoplatonic account, where desire is ultimately for what is good in itself, in its sheer abundance. This desire cannot be conceived as a means to something which, once attained, ends the desire, or it would not be desire for such a good. The desire is to be understood as a participation in the good that is desired, a good which continually attracts, giving the desire an endless quality, motivated by the abundance of the good rather than by the lack in the desirer. <clears throat> there is a lack in the desirer in relation to this abundance, but it's not out of the lack that the, the desire comes. The desire comes uh, in relation to the abundance and its attraction. The kind of desire that John, John of the Cross is interested in fits into this pattern. The God whom we desire is not desired as one who is absent, but as one who is utterly present. If God is felt to be absent, it is not because God is absent, or that we lack God, but rather because God is hidden, John says. We want God as the abundance that sustains our life, the life of our life. Desire for God is our attraction to this good, which fills every part of our lives and gives rise to subordinate propositional desires. <clears throat> to this broadly Neoplatonic basis, John of the Cross adds some more distinctively Christian elements. The one which marks him out in most people's minds is that he thinks that this desire is experienced at least in part in pain and darkness on account of the fallen human condition. This is John's dark night of the soul. The soul's vision of God is obstructed by the fallen tendency to desire God as a created object rather than as God, which is a common you know, trope, but here seen in terms of an experience of darkness when seeking God. Desire would like God to be reduced to the propositional account of desire that Brewer identified. According to John, 
I want God to be an X that I can grasp like an object in the world so that I can make the desire go away. In other words, I uh, misconstrue desire for God as a lack desire rather than an abundance desire. The open-ended, endless kind of desire that I also experience is felt as dark and uncomfortable because I don't know what to do with it. And so much do I not know what to do with it that I need grace to repair my God-given capacity to find my good in this kind of desire and to find rest in it. Um, I think one way of thinking about this is to think uh, what, what John is suggesting is that I always want, I always think that if God gives me an X, and I don't know what that X is, but if God would just give me an, this thing, uh, I would be satisfied. That's what I want from God. Just give me whatever it is that I really think I need, and I'll be satisfied. And John is saying, actually, the desire for God is not of that kind. The desire for God is one that will go on increasing the more you receive from God. So um, it's a different kind of desire. And you can find rest in that kind of desire, but not naturally. You need grace to help you find rest in that. Even once I choose to pursue it, it is confusing and disorientating until this capacity, my capacity for God, has been significantly transformed. <clears throat> so in John's first two major works, The Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night of the Soul, he focuses on the spiritual problem of what he calls the disproportion between created things and God as creator. Because of the sinful tendency of human desire to prefer the created over the creator, this disproportion requires a purgative process in response to repair and transform the soul. And John goes into various symptoms of this state of mind at the beginning of the ascent of Mount Carmel. One of them, he says, is that spiritual directors will find themselves faced with individuals who report that though they desire God and know the difference between God and creatures as objects of their desire, they have a feeling of, quote, not being satisfied with anything and even, quote, of distaste for the things of God. This is the beginning of the dark night. Correctly discerned, and it's very important that it is correctly discerned to distinguish it from uh, symptoms of depression, which he calls melancholy, um, correctly discerned, this must be recognized as a moment of grace. The reason for the sense of aridity is that these people have mistakenly identified the warm feelings that they previously had in spiritual exercises with God's actual presence, so that when these feelings disappear, they think that they have lost God. But God is beginning to communicate with the soul, quote, by an act of simple contemplation, and one that is disorientating only because there is, quote, no, no discursive succession of thought. Beneath the confusion, John points to a, quote, dark inflow of grace, according to Dionysius' notion of God as a supersensible ray of darkness, that is, without the features of created objects, yet utterly present. 
Desire for God at this stage feels like desire for nothing. I just want to take you through the drama of John's story of desire. The story of desire is the story of the spiritual life. And um, there's drama in it, which, um, which is worth just going through. <clears throat> so desire at this stage feels like, desire for God at this stage feels like desire for nothing. Um, but the reason for that is that literally it is desire for no thing. It is not that either God or the desire actually is nothing, but rather that the mind's awareness has not caught up with the character of the desire as greater than any particular feeling. The right response is to pursue this apparently objectless desire. As he puts it early in the ascent, and this is the famous bit of the ascent, just like a poem which you also find in T.S. Eliot's East Coker, to reach satisfaction in all, desire its possession in nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing, etc. This is just a part of it. Now, this always looked to me like a complete blank. John is saying, enjoy some sort of complete blank. Um, maybe this is kind of a form of meditation where you try and make your mind go blank. But actually, if one looks more closely, note that each of these phrases begins with desire. So there is no end to desire. It is only the object which disappears. John is suggesting that beneath the desire for creaturely type objects, there is a different kind of desire, which we know as desire, while not having any creaturely object on which to focus. This experience, though unsettling, is to be welcomed, and the spiritual director should look out for it and see how it can be nurtured. Desire for creatures and desire for God do not compete in John's account, except according to the misperception of fallen nature. They are simply different kinds of desire. To find desire for God, the first step is to look where desire continues, while the object of the desire feels as if it has been lost. This feels like desire for nothing, but in fact it is much more. If it is asked why this negation of the creaturely object should be identified with desire for God, John's response is that the difference between God and creatures is so great that the two desires cannot simply be compared. They don't compete and they can't be compared. We can say that we experience both as desire, but what they have in common can only be found at a deeper level beyond the level of creaturely objects, which we cannot see, and which we won't see short of transformation by grace. In the ascent and night, the feelings of loss and disorientation continue. That's the ascent of Mount Carmel and the Dark Night, John's first two major works, which were followed by the spiritual canticle and the living flame of love. The Dark Nights mark the shift 
through this loss of desire to the discovery of an authentic, a more authentic desire for God. For reasons of time, I'm going to move directly to John's later work, The Spiritual Canticle, which provides his fullest treatment of desire, moving beyond the stage of loss to the growth of desire in its meeting with divine desire in the state of union. The living flame of love covers much of the same territory, but it is shorter and it lacks some of the canticle's significant transitions. Now, the spiritual canticle, like John's other major works, is a poem on which he writes a commentary. And the poem very closely tracks the Song of Songs, though there's some interesting differences. But it's a poem inspired by the Song of Songs, uh, which describes a spiritual journey with ups and downs, God appears, God disappears, desire fluctuates. Um, but uh, there's the, 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 the paradigm metaphor, the paradigm idiom is, is eros of the, of the Song of Songs. The canticle poem um, begins, Where have you hidden, beloved, and left me moaning? This is the beloved who is, uh, who is God, uh, the bridegroom, in the Song of Songs, in, the, in this interpretation of the Song of Songs. God feels absent like one who has departed and hidden, leaving the soul moaning with desire. Any attempt to fill this desire with the things of creation will only, John says, quote, increase her desire and suffering rather than bring satisfaction, end of quote. Expressing the sense of frustration, John says, quote, it seems, God, you are about to give me the jewel of possessing you. But when I become aware of this possession, I discover that I do not have it. Now wholly surrender yourself by giving yourself entirely to all of me, that my entire soul may have complete possession of you. End of quote. Whenever the soul tries to pinpoint what it is that she desires, she identifies a created type of object which cannot be God, making God seem absent. But God is indeed present and to be identified with the desire itself. If attention is given to this desire, it becomes clear that it gives life, and this is how it's recognized. In spite of the pain of God's apparent absence, it, is become, it starts to be, uh, the soul starts to be aware that this desire gives life. John says, this love, quote, in killing her, makes her live the life of love. The desire puts her in contact with what she desires, even though she cannot grasp it. She starts to see that, quote, she lives through love in the object of her love. So it's in the love that the object re resides, in this desirous love. John sees this as a recognition of her creation in the image of God. Quote, the image of her bridegroom uh, resides at this deep level of her desire, as the life of the life of the desire. The desire can be recognized as one, quote, into which the soul desires to be transfigured through love. 
And he says it provides a true sketch or image of God's presence. She then, quote, calls out to the one who did this sketch to finish the painting an image. So the soul has spotted that it's in the desire that she will find God, and, but it's still a sketch that doesn't quite make clear where God is in that. <coughs> and that's uh, an image for what it is to be made in the image of God, that in our own desire we have a sketch of God's presence yet to, be, yet to become clear through grace. The con- yet the continuing feeling of deprivation in relation to the object means that the soul, the soul still feels, quote, that she is dying of love. The tension between God's presence within the desire and the continuing felt absence of an object leads next to a crisis. But it is a beneficial one because it brings about a total surrender. The crisis is caused by the fact that in its objectless quality, the desire feels to the soul as if it will tear it apart by leading it out in an endless ecstasy towards the infinity of God. If God is infinite and she is finite, how can this desire do anything other than destroy her? And just to look ahead, the answer will be because it's an abundance desire, not a lack desire. Uh, If it were a lack desire, and I were finite, and God were infinite, and I was satisfied by infinity, it would destroy me in my finitude, um, if it were a lack desire. But since it's an abundance desire, it won't do that. But I I still haven't quite worked that out in this journey, um, according to John. She is rushing, he says, towards God as impetuously as a falling stone which gives her a sense of vertigo, quote, like one suspended in the air with nothing to lean on, end of quote. She feels that the desire will tear her soul from her body since, quote, it causes her to go out of her senses and is, quote, beyond what the sensory part can endure. At this point, the soul despairs, asking God to withdraw. John says, quote, The torment she experiences at the time of this visit of ecstatic desire for God and the terror arising from her awareness of being treated in this supernatural way make her cry, withdraw them, these desires, beloved. Yet to have expressed this cry for God is exactly what the soul needs, for it marks her surrender to the help of divine divine grace. In this impasse, and everything for John always comes through an impasse, John says, the soul has, quote, no remedy other than to put put herself in the hands of God. This, I suppose, is John's cur deus homo. Why did God become man? It's found in the impasse of human desire for God. God must become human to rescue humanity from giving up on the deep desire that it knows to be the source of its life. God must show desire for humanity at the point of humanity's despair in its desire for God. John says, quote, 
The misery of human existence is such that when the communication and knowledge of the beloved, which gives more to the soul and for which she longs so ardently, is about to be imparted, she cannot receive it save almost at the cost of her life. Without divine intervention, humanity would give up on that source of life out of fear of losing all that it has and perceives itself to be uh, uh, in life without God. So divine intervention then comes, and this is the bit that I want to focus on in the canticle, because this is the transition point of desire um, from the lack to the abundance. And I think it's beautifully orchestrated by John of the Cross uh, in stanza 13 of the spiritual canticle. So if you want the reading that I would have given you in preparation, <laughs> if this had been a class, I'd have said read spiritual, the, can, uh, stanza 13 and the commentary on it in the spiritual canticle. Uh, but just to go through this then, the stanza 13 of the poem says, Return dove, the wounded stag is in sight on the hill, cooled by the breeze of your flight. The background to this is that um, at the beginning of the poem, she receives a wound of love from God. It's called a wound of love. I'll go into why that is in a minute. She receives a wound of love. That's this desirous, longing love for God. Uh, where have you gone, beloved, and left me moaning? God, who, who appears to have come to her and then departed, and she can't find where God is. This, this, where is the object that I want, that, that, I, that I can't grasp? Um, and, uh, and, she, and she searches all through the things of creation and she can't find God in any one of them. She, she looks at the beauty of creation and she can't find God in any of the things of creation. And uh, at this point, the, for the first time, the beloved appears as the wounded stag in sight on the hill. So you have an image of she's looking up to the hills and on the hill, a wounded stag appears. Uh, and John's interpretation of this, these few words, um, really, really shifts his treatment of desire. Um, we should begin then by noticing the connotations of the figure of the wounded stag, which would have been more familiar for his readers than it is for us. First of all, the wounded figure of Christ, any mention of wounds, means Christ, um, the incarnate God, wounded by suffering. Second, the wound of love from the Song of Songs. This is desirous love as mutual desire, yearning for one another, pictured as in the absence of one another. We've been together and then we're, in, we're, we're separated from each other and we're yearning for each other, called the wound of love. Uh, third, the stag who longs for cool water. The figure of the stag is Psalm 41, uh, 42, Psalm 41 in the Vulgate, 42 in our numbering. Uh, the stag who longs for cool water. This is a picture for human desire for God. Fourth, 
the stag who leaps on the mountains from Song 2.9, Song of Songs 2.9, is a picture of divine desire in its swiftness. And you find both of those things very prominent in Bernard of Clairvaux's sermons on the Song of Songs, which everybody in this period knows, including John. <clears throat> the wounded stag then connotes both human and divine desire meeting in the wounded figure of Christ. So now we turn to how John understands uh, his uh, figure in this poem uh, and uh, in terms of desire. The divine rescue works by John in the wounded stag being a figure for the incarnation, God's sending of the Son to be with the soul. And the motivation for that sending is God's desire to be with the wounded soul in her suffering. John says, the wounded stag, quote, if he hears the cry of his mate and senses that she is wounded, immediately runs to comfort her. So the stag whose fleet of foot, divine desire, goes to the place of human suffering to meet it. God responds to the wound of humanity's suffering with Christ's own wound, with the swift desire to heal humanity. Notice that the wound on both the divine and the human sides is not merely suffering, but desire. And desire dominates over suffering. The soul's wound is the ecstasy of desire for God. It has been felt as unbearably painful in the period immediately leading up to this stage, but the pain is because of the unfamiliarity of the non-created object character. In other words, this is not a desire for a created object, rather than inherent to it. The pain is not inherent to it, it's because it's of the unfamiliarity of this, this desire. On God's side, the desire is to rescue the soul from her suffering, it entails suffering out of solidarity with the soul in order to be with her. Thus, John says, quote, The bridegroom, beholding that the bride is wounded with love for him, he also, because of her moan, is wounded with love for her. End of quote. Two desires, divine and human, meet in the place of desire, both as a wound. And this leads to a transformation of the soul's um, inhabiting of this desire <clears throat> and understanding of it. The two desires are very different. The soul's is a painful desire, felt at this stage as a threat to her life. Divine desire is a rescuing desire coming to her aid out of love for her. Yet, though differently motivated, the two desires now meet, joining in a shared love. As John puts it, quote, among lovers, the wound of one is a wound for both. That's absolutely key to the transformation of desire. Among lovers, the wound of one, the desire of one, is a wound of both, is a desire of both. This is the transformative moment when human desire is transformed. So what changes? The wound of God's desire, by meeting human desire at the, at the point of its suffering, 
becomes a shared love. The desire changes from the solitary searching of human desire for a God who seems absent, motiv motivated by lack, uh, an erroneous sense of lack, in fact, to desire which is met by the other's desire. And in being requited, the soul's desire is transformed from lack to abundance. This recalls the wound of love of the Song of Songs, which, though painful, is offset by the joy of a desire that is shared. Her desire for God ceases to be a painful lack, becoming a delightful sharing, having been met by God's desire. The desire can now be experienced as a response to the gift of the other's desire, rather than a painful lack to be filled. There is no longer any sense of lack in it, now that it is not the soul's alone, but given and received freely between the two of them. And then healing consequences flow from this union. <coughs> the phrase return, dove, John interprets as the call of the bridegroom to the soul to return to her finite humanity. She need no longer think of her desire as tearing her humanity apart. The rescue by God's desire brings humanity, unable to live with its finitude and bodiliness, back to itself. Joining in the journey of God's ecstatic desire for humanity in the incarnation, which brings God to humanity. So there's this nice... She, she thought she had to let, leave her humanity to be with God, and God now brings that desire back to her humanity. Cooled by the breeze of your flight, the, the next phrase in the uh, poem, he interprets now as the flight of the soul's desire, which is now cooled by the Holy Spirit, as the breeze breathed by the Father and the Son, which refreshes it, bringing it to cool waters, as in the psalm. Desire is cooled in the sense that the pathological construction of desire, as implying infinite lack, is removed and replaced by the refreshing breeze of mutual love in its divine abundance. Rapture then ceases. The soul is not torn from the body, but is intercepted, John says, in its ecstasy, by the movement of the spirit from the divine side, who meets the soul in her humanity. There is still a mutual ecstasy of desire, but it changes to a peaceful and revivifying mutuality, rather than a painful suffering in solitude. So that's the exegesis, and now I just have uh, an objection and a conclusion. Uh, an objection. Is this really desire, once it has been met by the desire of God, and once lack is removed? Introducing the state of union in stanza 14, 15 of the canticle, John says, not only do her vehement yearnings and complaints of love cease, but a state of peace and delight and gentleness of love begins in her. She no longer speaks of sufferings and longings as she did before, 
but of the communion and exchange of sweet and peaceful love with her beloved, because now in this state all those sufferings have ceased. Can we talk about desire where there is no lack? Here I am going to turn briefly to Rowan Williams's article, The Deflections of Desire, uh, on John of the Cross, uh, in a book um, uh, called Silence and... <laughs> can't remember. I'll give you the, re the reference later. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's about the incarnation and negative theology which draws out the connections between John's treatment of desire and his theology of the Trinity. A distinctive feature of John, John's view of love, the love between the Father and the Son, is that it is not a closed mutuality. The procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son is not an enclosed love between them, but is always, quote, open to a further otherness, Williams says. Excuse me. How are we doing? We're fine. Um, a distinctive, yes, not a close mutuality. The procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son is not an enclosed love. Their love does not reach a terminus in the object loved. The Father and the Son not only love each other, but, William says, desire the desire of each other, desiring a greater shared desire that proceeds in an excess or deflection beyond them. Trinitarian love is a ceaseless or circling deflection in which love is always directed to but never determined by the specific other. So there is another to love which is distinct from God, uh, from, uh, there is a distinction, let's be careful, um, <laughs> but uh, the, the, the um, uh, um, uh, yes, the, the, we, we can't reduce it to a propositional account in which once I get the other, uh, the desire goes away. Um, <coughs> um, <coughs> God desires <clears throat> not because God lacks anything, but because it is desire's nature in God to be both shared and through this sharing <clears throat> to expand limitlessly. Thank you. Human desire responds by desiring this limitless expansion. Thanks. So that, as John says, this is a key quotation, it's actually from the living flame of love, the more the soul desires God, the more it possesses God. It's actually a key quotation, because we see there that the, um, the desire in no way is going to go away when we get God. The transformation of human desire from solitary lack to mutual abundance is seen later in the spiritual canticle as taking on this character of endless expansion. The mutuality of desire overflows beyond the desire for God to desire for others and for creation as a whole. Union, John says, quote, overflows into the effective and actual practice of love, 
either interiorly in the will, in the effective act, or exteriorly in works directed to the service of the beloved. The desire becomes the root of all the soul's other desires, including those that can be propositionally stated and satisfied. There is no competition between these two kinds of desire because the desires are differently constituted. The desire shared with God is at the level of the source. It overflows like a spring in the center of the soul, engulfing the other parts of the soul, so that, John says, quote, all the ability of my soul and body, memory, intellect, and will, interior and exterior senses, appetites of the sensory and spiritual part, move in love and because of love. End of quote. The overflow continues until the whole world is seen as rooted in God, where, quote, all things seem to move in unison, end of quote. This desire issues in virtuous activity because it always seeks further others with whom to share the desire. So to conclude, <clears throat> the only way to regard desire as a divine reality in the manner of the tradition from origin to John of the Cross is to see it as all-encompassing, not just as desire for this or that thing, as on the propositional model. Brewer's challenge and John of the Cross's challenge are rather different, but they join in seeing a kind of pathology in the propositional account of desire, which cuts humanity off from its deepest yearnings. The key for both is that desire in the deep sense is an endless desire, engaging the whole of life and defined by our attraction to its abundance rather than by lack. Of course, we cannot become infinite in this desire as God is. But the desire can be godlike, having an overflowing, endless quality that is not determined by satisfaction in attaining finite objects. John takes this desire to be the key to the restoration and integration of the human person. God meets human desire <clears throat> as desire at the point of desire's misconstrued sense of lack, rescuing it from self-destruction and, and transforming it into a desire that is mutual. Two desires, human and divine, which are very different, can become one, though the love through the love that is shared between persons. The question that remains is whether this can be articulated as desire today against a prevalent culture of accounts of desire, which in comparison are highly reductive. But that is what I would like to see. Thank you.